Hello and welcome to our next episode on the book of Romans. Today we're going to begin working through chapter 12. Uh, this is a chapter that a lot of Christians are probably pretty familiar with. And so I want to be careful not to just gloss over certain verses or texts because they're familiar. We need to be intentional in letting God's word speak for us as opposed to us bringing our own um, preconceived notions and interpretations and traditions to the table. So I encourage you, as I've had to encourage myself in studying this passage, to really dive into God's word. Don't just let it be something that you are familiar with. Really sit with the text and let the Holy Spirit work in you and reveal his truth. And so uh, to recap, we just wrapped up chapter 11. Uh, Paul, throughout most of his letter, has been appealing to the Jews in his audience to accept Christ. And I think one of the strongest appeals for them to accept Christ, uh, and also one of the best explanations for why they haven't yet accepted Christ, is found in chapter 11. That's where Paul mentions the partial hardening put on Israel, that God blinded them to the truth of Jesus so that the gospel would then spread to the Gentiles and make its way back to Israel. And that brings us to chapter 12, which starts with a therefore. Whenever scripture has a therefore, you can generally assume that it's based on the summary of the items that came before it. That seems fairly obvious. So when Paul says therefore, he's referring to everything that came before it. So Paul is referring back to Romans 1, where the wrath of God is revealed against the wicked. Uh, Romans 3, that you can't be saved by works. Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6, those who are saved are no longer under the dominion of sin. Romans 8, that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Romans 9, with God's sovereign choice and election. Romans 10, with the process of being saved by placing your faith in Christ. And everything else in the letter, Paul is pointing to all of that when he says, therefore. So keep that in mind as we dive into the text. So let's start at verse 1 in chapter 12, and I'm sure you will recognize some of what Paul is saying here. These are verses referenced fairly often in general Christian life. But again, let's be intentional about letting God's words speak first, and then from there we can apply what the Holy Spirit is teaching. So starting at verse 1, we will read through verse 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, there's that therefore that we referenced earlier. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. All right, so you can probably tell if you've been following along in this series on Romans that Paul 
his tone shifts here. Uh, chapters 1 through 11 are very heavy in their theology and in building a proper understanding of God, his plan for us, how he works, where and how we fit into all of that, and so many other concepts. And then we get the therefore that we talked about earlier. That the word that summarizes everything that came before it and then directs us to the closing thoughts of Paul in his letter to the Romans. Paul doesn't just leave his letter as an explanation of who God is and who we are, though that certainly would have given us enough material to discuss and apply for an eternity. Paul lays out an excellent theological foundation on, uh, on which his audience can then be given practical application for what it means to live as a follower of Christ. You now know these truths about God, our sin, salvation, and everything with that, and as a result... This is what it means to live a life in Christ. That's the tonal shift that we see in chapter 12. We go from learning to applying. And to start this practical application in, in Romans, Paul tells us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. The verbiage there is something that should give us pause. Living sacrifices is a phrase that we're probably so familiar with that we just kind of gloss over it. But if you think about it, it doesn't really make sense. A sacrifice in this context is something that is dead. It's been killed. It's been offered and discarded once it's served its purpose. Jews and Gentiles would have both been familiar with animal sacrifices where the animal is killed, offered on the altar, and burned up or discarded. But Paul says that we are to be a living sacrifice offered to God. What Paul is saying here is that the life of a Christian is a continual offering of ourselves for God and his kingdom. On this earth, in Christ, we are called to continually set aside our own desires in place of God's desires, which Paul gets to later in this chapter. God's desires become our desires and our bodies, our being is continually offered to him for what he wills. God calls us to a selfless service of him and his church for his glory. The life of a Christian isn't a one and done sacrifice where you pray a sinner's prayer and then you're good to go, or you do one or two good deeds and you call it a day. Offering ourselves continually is our response to everything that God has done for us. Everything that we learned in the first 11 chapters of Romans, because of what God has done for us, therefore we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, continually dying to ourselves as we live in Christ. But how are we to know what we are supposed to do or how we are supposed to offer ourselves for God? How do we know how God wants us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices? Well, that's where verse 2 comes in. Paul says that we need to be careful not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Paul knows that the world is not neutral. The world is against God. And so the idea of being a continual offering, a living sacrifice to God is anti-world. The world sees that and says, hey, you've, you've put in enough time. You, you deserve a break. God can do those things without you. They're starting to abuse you and take advantage of your time. And God doesn't really value you if you're burned out. But we are called to know better and to have a different perspective from the world. If you remember all the way back in Romans 1, Paul mentions that those who are against God become futile in their thinking, meaning their minds have fallen into error. 
But in Christ, we are called to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So rather than adopting the influence of the world and letting that conform us to the image of the world, we are made new into the mind of Christ. And Paul offers a practical way for us to do this. He says that by testing, we can discern the will of God. Now let's first address what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that we should do a bunch of random actions and then see how we feel about them through a sort of trial and error. And then if we feel bad about it, it's not God's will. And if we feel good about it, it is God's will. What Paul is saying is that by testing our mind against the recorded will of God, in his revelation to us, in his word, through scripture, we can discern what is and isn't God's will. And then Paul outlines some practical ways that we can see this in action. He begins to outline the reality that we, as a body of Christ, are called to a variety of ways of serving. Paul does this because we are often prone to comparison. We look at the people around us using their giftings and, and think, gosh, this person is so good at speaking or writing or singing or playing an instrument or leadership or administration or whatever it might be. Uh, this person is so gifted in ministering to the needy or being generous. It's so effortless for them. And we think that because we aren't offering ourselves in the same way that we don't measure up to being a Christian. But in that comparison, we miss the things that God is calling us to be a sacrifice in. You may not be a great singer, but you would be a great greeter at church or a gifted administrator for the worship team. You may not be a talented public speaker, but you would be an excellent researcher that can offer your abilities and talents for those that are speaking. Paul says that we are all one body, but different parts, serving in different ways. So the way I serve will look different than the way that you serve. But the point here is that we both serve. <laughs> The way you serve may yield more public fruit or results for the kingdom, while my way of serving may be more in support of others who are more public in their giftings. What matters is that we faithfully serve and offer ourselves to kingdom work. And in this explanation and outline, Paul provides some guidelines for service to the kingdom. He mentions prophecy first as an example and says, if you have the gift of prophecy, exercise it according to the proportion of your faith. You know, there's this thought that kind of permeates through the church that if we're given, if we're given a word from God, no matter how confident we are in it or not, we're just supposed to make it known. So if I, if I get a word for you, I am obligated to tell you that word, whether it be to an individual or to a group. If you're given a word from God, it doesn't matter if you're not sure where it came from or if it's just you or if you had bad cheese the night before, whatever it might be. If you're given a word, you are obligated to share it. That's the kind of thought that permeates through the church nowadays. But Paul here tells us to be discerning in our prophecy and only prophesy according to the proportion of our faith, meaning the confidence with which we prophesy is linked to our faith. The more confident we are that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, the more confident we can be in prophesying. But Paul is clear in asking for discernment here. You don't just get a feeling and then start shouting your prophecy to anyone in the vicinity. There have been a lot of people hurt by poor use of the gift of prophecy because people just aren't discerning what is being given to them. Next, Paul mentions service. And if you are gifted in service, Paul provides the guideline for you to serve by 
serving. <laughs> this might seem obvious, but so often in our church and our culture, it's neglected. Uh, the Greek here for service means to minister or to execute an action uh, to meet the needs of another. And so often we have the thought of, oh, well, someone else will see their need. Someone else will step in. And what Paul is saying is that if you have the gift of service, and it is a gift that not everyone has, being able to both see and meet the needs of others, then you should serve in that way. Don't just assume that someone else will meet the need. You have been given that gift. Serve in that way. Meet the need. And after service, Paul mentions teaching. And if you are given the gift of teaching, specifically in the context of the church, like teaching doctrine or teaching how to rightly divide and understand the word of God, you should do that. Teach people. Find ways to exercise that gift. You don't need a platform or a stage to be, uh, in order to be a teacher. You can teach in one-on-one -on -one conversations or mentoring relationships, or you can lead or assist in the leading of a small group at your church, or you can, uh, by gosh, you could teach in children's ministry. Or you can teach those who have platforms to publicly proclaim the word of God. The, the opportunities for this gift are almost endless. There are so many ways that you could step into relationship with people and offer the gift of teaching. But we so often dupe ourselves into thinking that, well, if I'm not on stage or if, I'm not in, if I don't have a platform, if I don't have a following, then I'm not really teaching. And that's just, that's just not true. After teaching, Paul mentions the gift of exhortation. And if there was ever a gift that the church needed more of today, it is this. A lot of people will read definitions for exhort and think it just means to to encourage. Uh, but that's really only part of what that means. Exhorting doesn't mean that you just offer attaboys and pats on the back and some great job exclamations to anyone that you come across. To exhort means to encourage by calling someone to do better. You build up and push forward by calling people to excellence. This comes both through encouragement, things like the attaboys and the great jobs and the pats on the back, and also by challenging things like constructive criticism and accountability and, and having those tough conversations to pull people more toward Christ. Our culture is full of the mentality that if you tried and you did your best, then you can't be challenged or critiqued. People with the gift of exhortation know how to speak into these situations with love and gentleness and grace in order to challenge people to look more like Christ. And it's something that the church desperately needs today. Paul then mentions the gift of contribution, and this specifically has to do with finances. Now, Paul is not saying that if you're rich, you automatically have the gift of contribution. This gift is driven by sincerity toward Christ and his kingdom. A lot of times, yeah, it comes from the people that are wealthier, uh, and it's easy to part with larger sums of money. That's often the case, but also true maybe more often is the person who is not wealthy and still gives generously and sincerely knowing the needs of the church and strategically offering their contribution to the church. The church is often not propelled into ministry by millionaires and billionaires. It is often propelled and sustained by the average Joes and Janes that faithfully and sincerely contribute to kingdom work. Next, Paul mentions the gift of leadership. It's interesting and noteworthy that Paul separates this 
from teaching as we often tend to think of these both being exhibited by the same person. And sometimes they are. These gifts can exist in the same person, a teacher and a leader. But this gift is specifically focused on leading people and offering direction that brings people into the vision of God's kingdom. And that can be through administration or public leadership or speaking or powerful influence in one-on-one relationships. Paul's direction here for leaders is to do so with zeal or passion and urgency. It's not enough to know where we need to go or to know the best way forward. To properly lead is to understand the weight of leadership, be passionate about the people that you lead, and understand the urgency of the mission that we've been given as a church. And lastly, Paul mentions acts of mercy. This is important to understand and distinguish between acts of service that we mentioned earlier. The word mercy here implies that the person who does these acts is given the gift of mercifully serving, meaning the person on the receiving end of this act is undeserving. They deserve something else. But mercifully, you serve them, you forgive them, and you withhold what they do deserve and replace it with an act of kindness, an act of mercy. Maybe they've wronged you or your family or your church, uh, but they are still in need. And if you are given the gift of serving, even the undeserving, Paul calls you to serve with cheerfulness. It would be a poor testimony to the church if you serve someone who is undeserving but you grumble and complain and gossip the whole time that you're with them. This is a crucial gift that the church, unfortunately, often overlooks and undervalues. And so if you are given the gift of mercifully serving, Paul calls you to do it cheerfully. And I would add, not to scripture, but as a footnote, that the church should encourage those who have this gift as well. And so all of these gifts are necessary for the church. So all of them should be valued and understood and encouraged in the church, not just because we cannot function properly as a church without them, but because we grow to better understand our Savior when we see them in action. Look back at these gifts, prophecy, serving, teaching, exhortation, contribution, leadership, acts of mercy. If you had to think of one person who perfectly embodies all of these gifts, Who would you picture? I can't think of a better prophet and teacher than Jesus. I can't think of a better servant and enactor of mercy than Christ. There was no one who was more generous and sincere in their contribution toward us, and no one more effective in their leadership and exhortation to call us from death to life, from sin to holiness, than our perfect Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. These gifts are a beautiful tapestry that point us to a more perfect and wonderful Savior. And through our actions as a church, through our faithful offering of ourselves as living sacrifices and the use of these gifts, we point people to that perfect and wonderful Savior. And that ultimately is what all of this is about, bringing people to Christ. But hey, maybe I've missed something. Maybe I've overlooked uh, something in these gifts or something about living sacrifices. And I would love to know your thoughts on this passage. Things that jumped out to you, things that you, uh, things that you agree with, things that you disagree with. I would love to continue that discussion because this is so important that the church gets this right. But as always, thank you for tuning in. May God bless you and I will see you soon.